So, previously on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, um, Harry went back to the Weasleys uh, with Ron, Hermione and all of the Weasleys brothers. Then they went to the camping for the Quidditch World Cup uh, by a portkey. That was a shoe, and they met um, the Diggories. Uh, Cedric is the um, seeker, the Hufflepuff seeker. Then they went to the camping and met uh, Baxman, Mr. Baxman, and Mr. Crouch. So, Mr. Bagman is the Minister of Sports. And um, that's um, how the Weasley father had um, the tickets for the World Cup. And then Mr. Crouch is, I don't know what, what he is, but he's important. And uh, Baxman, it's, he is not very into security. And, um, oh yeah, we also learned that um, a girl is missing. And in the first chapter, we, we, we heard that girl's name because that's, uh, because that's in the dream, in Harry's dream, when um, Voldemort talks about killing people and he obviously had killed that girl. Chapter 8, the Quidditch World Cup. Clutching their purchases, Mr. Weasley in the lead, they all hurried into the wood following the lantern lit trail. They could hear the sounds of thousands of people moving around them, shouts and laughter, Snatches of singing. singing. The atmosphere of feverish excitement was highly infectious. Harry couldn't stop grinning. They walked through the woods for 20 minutes, talking and joking loudly, until at last they emerged, emerged on the other side and found themselves in the shadow of a gigantic stadium. Though Harry could see only a fraction of the immense gold walls surrounding the pitch, he could tell that ten cathedrals would fit comfortably inside it. Sits a hundred thousand, said Mr. Weasley, spotting the awestruck look on Harry's face. Ministry task task force of five hundreds have been working on it all year, muggle repelling charms on every inch of it. Every time muggles have got anywhere near here all year, they've suddenly remembered urgent appointments and had to dash away again. Bless them, he added fondly, leading the way towards the nearest entrance which was already surrounded by a swarm of shouting witches and wizards. Prime seats, said the ministry, which at the entrance, when she checked their tickets. Top box, straight upstairs, Arthur, and as high as you can go. The stairs into the stadium were carpeted in rich purple, they clambered upwards with the rest of the crowd, which slowly filtered away through doors into the stands of to their left and right. Mr. Weasley's party kept climbing, and at last they reached the top of the staircase and found themselves in a small box set at the highest point of the stadium, 
and situated exactly halfway between the golden goalposts. About twenty purple and gilt chairs stood in two rows here, and Harry, feeling into the front seats with the Weasleys, looked down upon the scene the like of which he could never have imagined. A hundred thousand witches and wizards were taking places in the seats which rose in levels around the long oval pitch. Everything was surfaced with a mysterious golden light that seemed to come from the stadium itself. The pitch looked smooth as velvet from the lofty position. At either end of the pitch stood three goal hoops, fifty feet high, right opposite them, almost at Harry's eyes level, was a gigantic blackboard. Gold writing kept dashing across it as though an invisible giant's hand was scrolling upon it and then whipping it off again. Watching it, Harry saw that it was flashing advertisement across the pitch. The blue bottle, a broom for all the family, safe, reliable and with inbuilt anti-burglars buzzer. Mrs. Locus all purpose magical mess remover, no pain, no stain. Galdrag's wizardry, wizard wear, London, Paris, Hogsmeade, etc. Harry tore his eyes away from the sign and looked over his shoulder to see who, are, who else was sharing the box, the box with them. So far, it was empty, except for tiny, for a tiny creature sitting in the second front last seat, at the end of the row behind them. The creature, whose legs were so short they struck out in front of it, on the chair, was wearing a tea towel trapped like toga, like a toga, and it had its face hidden in its hands. Yet those long bat-like ears were oddly familiar. Dobby, said Harry incredulously. The tiny creature looked up and parted its fingers, revealing enormous brown eyes and a nose the exact size and shape of a large tomato. It wasn't Dobby, it was, however, unmistakably, unmistakably a house elf, as Harry's friend Dobby had been. Harry had set Dobby free from his old owners, the Malfoy family. Did Sir just call me Dobby? squeaked the elf curiously from between its fingers. Its voice was higher even than Dobby's had been, a teeny, quivering squeak of a voice, and Harry suspected, though it was very hard to tell with a house elf, that this one might be a female. Ron and Hermione spun around in their seats to look. Though they have heard a lot about Toby from Harry, they had never actually met him. Even Mr. Weasley looked around in interest. Sorry, Harry told the elf. I just thought you were someone I knew. But I know Toby too, sir, squeaked the elf. She was shielding her face as though blinded by light though the top box was not brightly lit, brightly lit. My name is Winky, sir, and you, sir, her dark brown eyes widened to the size of side plates as they rested upon Harry's car. You is surely Harry Potter. 
Yeah, I am, said Harry. But Dobby talks of you all the time, sir, she said, lowering her hands very slightly and looking awestruck. How easy, said Harry. How's freedom's with suiting him? Ah, sir, said Winky, shaking her head. Ah, sir, meaning no disrespect, sir, but I... I is not sure you did Dobby a favor, sir, when you is setting him free. Why, said Harry, taking him back, what's wrong with him? Freedom is going to Dobby's head, sir, said Winky sadly. I is above his station, sir. Can't get another position, sir. Why not, said Harry. Winky lowered her voice by a half octave and whispered, He's wanting paying for his work, sir. Paying? said Harry blankly. Well, why shouldn't he be paid? Winky looked quite horrified at the idea and closed her fingers slightly so that her face was half hidden again. House house is not paid, sir, she said in a muffled squeak. No, 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 I say to Dobby, I says, go find yourself a nice family and settle down, Dobby. He's getting up to all sorts of high jinks, sir. What is unbecoming to a house elf? You goes racketing around like this, Dobby, I say. And next thing I, he- I hear use up in front of the Department of all the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures, like some common goblin. Well, it's time he had a bit of fun, said Harry. House House is not supposed to have fun, Harry Potter, said Winky firmly, from behind her hands. House elves does what they told. I is not liking hate at all, Harry Potter. She glanced toward, towards the edge of the box and gulped. But my master sends me to the top of box to the top box, and I come, sir. Why he sent you up here if he knows you don't like hate? Said Harry, frowning. Master, Master wants me to save him a seat, Harry Potter. He is very busy, said Winky, tilting her head towards the empty space beside her. Winky's wishing she's back in Master's tent, Harry Potter, but Winky does what she's told. Winky is a good house elf. She gave the age of the box another frightened look and hid her eyes completely again. Harry turned back to the others. So that's her house elf, Ron muttered. Weird things, aren't they? Dobby was weirder, said Harry fervently. Ron pulled out his omnioculars and started testing them, staring down into the crowd on the other side of the stadium. Wild, he said, twiddling and twiddling the replay knob on the side. I can make that old bloke down there pick his nose again, nose again, and again, and again. Hermione, meanwhile, was skimming eagerly through her velvet-covered, tasseled program. A display from the team mascots will precede the match, she read, she read aloud. Oh, that's always worth watching, said Mr. Weasley. National teams bring creatures from the na- native land, you know, to put on a bit of show. The box filled gradually around them over the next half hour.
Mr. Weasley kept shaking hands with people who were obviously very important wizards. Percy jumped to his feet so often that he looked as though he was trying to sit on a hedgehog. When Cornelius Fudge, the minister of all magic himself, arrived, Percy bowed so low that his glasses fell off and shattered. Highly embarrassed, he repaired them with his wand and thereafter remained in his seat, throwing jealous looks at Harry, whom Cornelius Fudge had greeted like an old an old friend. They had met before and Fudge shook Harry's hand in fatherly fashion, asked how he was and in introduced him to the wizards on either side of him. Harry Potter, you know, he loudly told the Bulgarian minister, who was wearing splendid robes of black velvet trimmed with gold and didn't seem to understand a word of English. Harry Potter, oh, come on now, you know who it is, the boy who survived, you know who. You, don't, you do know who he is. The B Bulgarian wizard suddenly spotted Harry's car and started gabbling loudly and excitedly, pointing at it. Knew we'd get there at, in the end, said Fudge wearily to Harry. I'm no great shakes at languages. I need Barty Crouch for this sort of thing. Ah, I see his house health, saving him a seat. Good job, too. These Bulgarian blighters have been trying to catch all the best places. Ah, and... Here's Lucius. Harry, Ron and Hermione turned quickly, edging along the second row to three steer seats right behind Mr. Weasley were none other than Dobby, the house house old owners. Lucius Malfoy, his son Draco, and a woman Harry supposed must be Draco's mother. Harry and Draco Malfoy have been enemies ever since they, their very first journey at two Hogwarts. A pale boy with a pointed face and white blonde hair, Draco greatly resembled his father. His mother was blonde too, tall and slim. She would have been nice looking if she hadn't been wearing a look that suggested there was a nasty smell under her nose. Ah, Fudge, said Mr. Marfoy, holding out his hand as he reached the Minister for Magic. How are you? I don't think you've met my, my wife, Narcissa, or our son, Draco. How do you do? How do you do, said Fudge, smiling and bowing to Mrs. Mrs. Malfoy, and allow me to introduce you to Mr. Oblonsk. Oblonsk? Mr. Well, he's the Bulgarian minister for magic, and he can't understand a word I'm saying anyway, so never mind. And let's see who else, um, you know... Arthur Weasley, I dare say. It was a tense moment. Mr. Weasley and Mr. Malfoy looked at each other, and Harry vividly recalled the last time that they had come face to face. It had been in Flourish and Blot's bookshop, and they had a fight. They had had a fight. Mr. Malfoy's cold grey eyes swept over Mr. Weasley and then up and down the road. Good Lord, Arthur, he said softly, what did you have to sell to, to get seats in the top box?
Surely your house wouldn't have fetched this much. Fudge, who wasn't listening, said, Lucius has just given a very generous contribution to St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries, Arthur. He's here as my guest. How, how nice, said Mr. Weasley, with a very strained smile. Mr. Malfoy's eyes had returned to Hermione, who went slightly pink, but stared determinedly back at him. Harry knew exactly what was, what was making Mr. Malfoy's lip curl. The Malfoys prided themselves on being pure bloods. In other words, they considered anyone of Muggle descent like Hermione second class. However, under the gaze of the Minister for Magic, Mr. Malfoy didn't dare say anything. He nodded sneeringly to Mr. Weasley and continued down the line to his seat. Draco shot Harry, Ron and Hermione one contemptuous look, then settled himself between his mother and father. Slimy kids, Ron muted, as he, Harry and Hermione turned to face the pitch again. Next moment, Ludo Bagman had charged into the box. Everyone ready? He said, his round face gleaming like a great excited Aiden. Minister, ready to go? Ready when you are, Ludo, said Fudge comfortably. Ludo wiped out his wand, directed it at his own throat, and said sonorous, and then spoke over the row of sound that was now filling the packed stadium. His voice echoed over them, booming into every corner of the stands. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Welcome to the final of the 422nd Quidditch World Cup. The spectators screamed and clapped. Thousands of flags waved, adding their discordant national anthem to the racket. The huge blackboard opposite them was wiped clear of its last message. Bertie bought fl every flavour beans, a risk with every mouthful, and now showed Bulgaria zero, Ireland zero. And now, without further ado, allow me to introduce the Bulgarian team mascots. The right-hand side of the stands, which was a solid block of scarlet, roared its approval. I wonder what they've bought, brought, said Mr. Weasley, leaning forward in his seat. Ah, he suddenly wiped off his glasses and polished them hurriedly on his robes. Villa. What are Villa? But a hundred Villa were now gliding out onto the pitch, and Harry's question was answered for him. Villa were women, the most beautiful women Harry had ever seen except that they weren't, they couldn't be human. This puzzled Harry for a moment, while he tried to guess what exactly they could be, what could make their skin shine moonbright like that, or their white gold hair fan out behind them without wind. But then the music started and Harry stopped worrying about them not being human. In fact, he stopped worrying about anything at all. The villa had started to dance and Harry's mind had gone completely and blissfully blank. All that mattered in the world 
was that he kept watching the villa, because if they stopped dancing, terrible things would happen. And as the villa danced faster and faster, Wild had half-formed thought started chasing through Harry's dazed mind. He wanted to do something very impressive right now. Jumping from the box into the stadium seemed a good idea. But would it be good enough? Harry, what are you doing? said Hermione's voice from a long way off. The music stopped. Harry blinked. He was standing up and one of his legs was resting on the wall of the box. Next to him, Ron was frozen in an attitude that looked as though he was about to dive from a springboard. Angry yells were filling the stadium. The crowd didn't want to Villa to go. Harry was with them. He would, of course, be supporting Bulgaria, and he wondered vaguely why he had a large green shamrock pinned to his chest. Ron, meanwhile, was absent-mindedly shredding the shamrocks on his hat. Mr. Weasley, smiling slightly, leant over to Ron and tugged the, the hat out of his hands. You'll be wanting that, he said, once Ireland have had their say. Eh? said Ron, staring open-mouthed at the villa, who had now lined up along one side of the pitch. Hermione made a loud titting noise. She reached up and pulled Harry back into his seat. Honestly, she said. And now, wrote Ludo Baxman's voice, kindly put your wands in the air for the Irish national team mascots. Next moment, what seemed to be a great green and gold comet had come zooming into the stadium. It did one circuit of the stadium, then split into two smaller comets each hurtling toward the goalposts. A rainbow asked suddenly across the pitch, connecting the two balls of light. The crowd ooded and awed as though at a firework display. Now the rainbow faded and the balls of light reunited and merged. They had formed a great shimmering shamrock which rose up into the sky and began to soar over the stands. Something like golden rain seemed to be falling from it. Excellent, yelled Rome, as the shamrock soared over their heads, and heavy gold coins rained from it, bouncing off their heads and seats. Squinting up at the shamrock, Harry realized that it was actually composed of thousands of tiny little bearded men with red waistcoats, each carrying a minute lamp of golden and green, of gold and green. Leprechauns, said Mr. Weasley, over the tumultuous applause of the crowd many of whom were still fighting and rummaging around under the chair to retrieve the gold. There you go, said Ron yelled happily, stuffing a fistful of gold coins into Harry's hand. For the the Omnicolos, now you've got to buy me a Christmas present. The great shamrock dissolved the leprechauns drift down onto the pitch on the opposite side of the villa and settled themselves cross-legged to watch the match. And now, ladies and gentlemen, kindly welcome the Bulgarian national Quidditch team.
I give you Dimitrov, a scarlet clad figure on a broomstick moving so fast it was blurred, shot out onto the pitch from an entrance far below to wild applause from the Bulgarian supporters. Ivanova, a second scarlet robed player, zoomed out. Zograf, Levski, Volkchanov, Volkov, and Krum. That's him, that's him, yelled Ron, following Krum with his omnioculars. Harry quickly focused on his own. Victor Crum was thin, dark and sallow-skinned, with a large curved nose and thick black eyebrows. He looked like an overgrown bird of prey. It was hard to believe he was only 18. And now please greet the Irish National Quidditch team, yelled Backman, presenting Connolly, Ryan, Troy, Millet. Moran, Quigley and Lynch. Seven green blurs swept onto the pitch. Harry spun a small dial on the side of his omnioculars and slowed the player down enough to read the words firebolt on each of the brooms and see the names embroidered in silver upon their backs. And here, all the way from Egypt, our referee acclaimed chair wizard of the International Association of Quidditch, Hassan Mustafa. A small and skinny wizard, completely bald, but with a moustache to rival Uncle Vernon's, wearing robes of pure gold to match the stadium strode out onto the pitch. A silver whistle was protruding uh, from under the moustache and he was carrying a large wooden crate under one arm, his broomstick under the other. Harry spun and speed dial on his omnioculus back to normal watching closely as Mustafa mounted his broomstick and nicked the crate open. Four balls burst into the air, the scarlet quaffle, the two black blutches and, Harry saw it for the briefest moment before it sped out of sight, the minuscule winged golden snitch. With a sharp blast on his whistle, Mustafa shot into the air after the balls. They are off, screamed Backman, and it's Mullet, Troy, Moran, Dimitrov. Back to Mullet, Troy, Levski, Moran. It was Quidditch as Harry had never seen it played before. He was pressing his omnioculus so hard to his eyes that his glasses were cutting into the bridge of his nose. The speed of the players was incredible. The chasers were throwing the quaffle to each other so fast that Baxman only had time to say their names. Harry spun the slow dial on the right of his omnioculars again, pressed the play-by-play bu button, one on the top and he was immediately watching in slow motion, while glittering purple lettering flashed across the lenses and the noise of the crowd pounded against his eardrums. Oxhead attacking formation, he read, as he watched the three Irish chasers zoom closely together. Troy in the centre, slightly ahead of Millet and Moran, bearing down upon the Bulgarians. Porkscoff ploy flashed up next, 
as Troy made a, as though the dart upwards with the quaffle, drawing away the Bulgarian chaser Ivanova, and dropping the quaffle to Moran. One of the Bulgarian beaters, Volkov, swung hard at a passing bludger with a small club, knocking it onto Moran's path. Moran ducked to avoid the bludger and dropped the quaffle, and Levski, soaring beneath, caught it. Troy's course roared Backman, and the stadium shuddered with a whirl of applause and cheers. 10-0 to Ireland. What? Harry yelled, looking wildly around through his omnicolors. But Levski got the quaffle. Harry, if you're not going to watch at normal speed, you're going to miss things, shouted Hermione, who was dancing up and down, waving her arms in the air while Troy did a lap of honour of the pitch. Harry looked quickly over the top of his onoculars and saw that the leprechauns watching from the sidelines had all risen into the air again and formed the great glittering shamrock. Across the pitch, the villa were watching them sulkily. Furious with himself, Harry spun his desire back to normal as play resumed. Harry knew enough about Quidditch to see that the Irish chasers were superb. They worked as a seamless team, appearing to read each, other, each other's minds by the way they positioned themselves, and the rosette on Harry's chest kept squeaking their names. Troy, Mullet, Moran. And within ten minutes, Ireland had scored twice more, bringing their lead to 30-0 and causing a thunderous tide of roars and applause from the green-clad supporters. The match became still faster but more brutal. Volkov and Vulkanov, the Bulgarian beaters, were watched walking the bloodlet the bludgers as fiercely as possible at the Irish chasers and were starting to prevent them using some of their best move. Twicing, twice they were forced to scatter and then finally Ivanova managed to break through their ranks, dodge the keeper Ryan and score Bulgaria's first goal. Fingers in your ears, bellowed Mr. Weasley, as the villa started to dance in celebration. Harry screwed up his eyes too. He wanted to keep in his mind on the game. After a few seconds, he chanced a glance at the pitch. The villa had stopped dancing, and Bulgaria were again in possession of the quaffle. Dimitrov, Levski, Dimitrov, Ivanova, oh, say, oh, I say, rode Bagman. One hundred thousand wizards and witches gasped as the two seekers, Crumb and Lynch, plummeted through the centre of the chasers so fast that it looked as though they had just jumped from aeroplanes without parachutes. Harry followed their descent through his omnioculars, squinting to see where the, sne the snitch was. They're going to crash, screamed Hermione next to Harry. She was half right. At the very last second, Victor Crumb pulled out of the dive and spiralled off. Lynch, however, hit the ground with a dual thud that could be heard throughout the stadium. A huge groan rose from the Irish seats. Fool, moaned Mr. Weasley, 
Cram was fainting. It's time out, yelled Baxman's voice. As Troyne made wizards hurry onto the pitch to examine Aiden Lynch. He'll be okay. He only got plugged. Charlie said wish reassuringly to Ginny, who was hanging over the side of the box looking horror-struck. Which is what Graham was after, of course. Harry hastily pressed the replay and play and by-play buttons on his omnioculars, twiddled the speed dial, and put them back up to his eyes. He watched as Crumb and Lynch dive again in slow motion. Ronsky faint, dangerous seeker div- diversion. Read the shiny purple lettering across his lenses. He saw Crumb's face contorted with concentration as he pulled out of the dive just in time while Lynch was flattened and he understood. Cram hadn't seen the snitch at all, he was just making Lynch copy him. Harry had never seen anyone fly like that. Cram hardly looked as though he was using a broomstick at all. He moved so easily through the air that it looked as though he was unsupported and weightless. Harry turned his omnioculus back to normal and focused them on Crumb. He was circling high above Lynch, who was now being revived by magic wizards with cups of potion. Harry focusing still more closely upon Crumb's face, so his dark eyes darting all over the ground of a hundred feet below. He was using the time while Lynch was revived to look for the snitch without interference. Lynch got to his feet at last, to loud cheers from the green-clad supporters, mounted his firebolt and kicked back off into the air. His revival seemed to give Ireland new heart. When Mustafa blew his whistle again, the chasers moved into action with a skill unrivaled by anything Harry had seen so far. After 15 more fast and furious minutes, Ireland had pulled up ahead by 10 more goals. They were now leading by 130 points to 10, and the game was starting to get dirtier. As Mullet shot towards the goalposts, yet again clutching the quaffle tightly under her arm, the Bulgarian keeper, Zograf, flew out to meet her. Whatever happened was over so quickly Harry didn't catch it, but a scream of rage from the Irish crowd and Mustafa's long shrill whistle blast told him it had been a fool. And Mustafa takes the Bulgarian keeper to task for cobbing, excessive use of elbows, Bagman informed the roaring spectators. And yes, it's a penalty for Ireland. The leprechauns, who had risen angrily into the air like a swarm of glittering hornets when Mullet had been fooled, now darted together to form the words Ha Ha Ha. The villa on the other side of the pitch leapt to their feet, tossed their their hair angrily and started to dance again. As one, the Weasley boys and Harry stuffed their fingers in their ears, but Hermione, who hadn't bothered, 
was soon tugging on Harry's arm. He turned to look at her and she pulled his finger impatiently out of his ears. Look at the referee, she said, jiggling. Harry looked down at the pitch. Hassan Mustafa had landed right in front of the dancing villa and was acting very oddly indeed. He was flexing his muscle, muscles and smoothing his moustache excitedly. Now we can't have that, said Ludo Bagman, though he sounded highly amused. Somebody slapped the referee. A midi wizard came tearing across the pitch, his fingers tufted in his own ears and kicked Mustafa hard on the skin, the shins. Mustafa seemed to come to himself. Harry, watching through the omnioculars again, saw that he looked exceptionally embarrassed and was shouting at the villa who had stopped dancing and were looking mutinous. And unless I'm much mistaken, Mustafa is actually attempting to send off the Bulgarian team mascots, said Baxman's voice. Now there's something we haven't seen before. Oh, this could turn nasty. It did. The Bulgarian beaters Volkov and Volkanov had landed either side of Mustafa and began arguing furiously with him, gesticulating towards the leprechauns, who had now gleefully formed the words, He he he! Mustafa was not impressed by the Bulgarians' arguments. However, he was jabbing his fingers into the air, clearly telling them to get flying again and when they refused, he gave two short blasts on his whistle. Two penalties for Ireland, shouted Bergman, and the Bulgarian crowd howled, howled with anger. And Volkov and Vukanov had better get back on those brooms. Yes, there they go, and Troy takes the quaffle. Play now reached a level of ferocity beyond anything they had yet seen. The beaters on both sides were acting without mercy. Volkov and Volkanov in particular seemed not to care whether their clubs made contact with bludger or human as they swung them violently through the air. Dimitrov shot straight at Moran, who had the quaffle, nearly knocking her off her broom. Fool, roared the Irish supporters as one, all standing up in a great wave of green. Fool, echoed Ludo Bachmann's magically magnified voice. Dimitrov skins Moran deliberately flying to collide there. And it's got to be another penalty, yes, there's the whistle. The leprechauns had risen into the air again and this time they formed a giant hand which was making a very rude sign indeed across the pitch towards the villa. At this, the villa lost control. They launched themselves across the pitch and began throwing what seemed to be handfuls of fire at the leprechauns. Watching through the, his omnioculars, Harry saw that they didn't look remotely beautiful now. On the contrary, their faces were elongating into sharp, cruel, beaked bird heads and long scaly wings were bursting from their shoulders. And that, boys, yelled Mr. Weasley over the tumult of the crowd below, is why you should never go for looks alone. 
ministry wizards were flooding onto the field to separate the villa and the leprechauns. But with little success, meanwhile, the pitched battle below was nothing to the one above. Harry turned his way and that staring through his omnioculars, as the quaffle changed hands with the speed of a bullet. Levski Dimitrov, Moran Triumulet, Ivanova, Moran again, Moran, and Moran's cause. But the cheers of the Irish supporters were barely heard over the shrieks of the villa. The blasts now issuing from the ministry members once, and the furious roars of the Bulgarians. The game recommenced immediately. Now Levski had the quaffle, now Dimitrov. The, the Irish Peter quickly swung heavily at the passing bludger and hit it as hard up as possible towards Crumb, who did not duck quickly enough. It hit him hard in the face. There was a defining groan from the crowd. Crumb's nose looked broken. There was blood everywhere, but Hassan Mustafa didn't blow his whistle. He had become distracted, and Harry couldn't blame him. One of the villa had thrown a handful of fire and set his broom tail alight. Harry wanted someone to realize that Crumb was injured, even though he was supporting Ireland. Crumb was the most exciting player on the pitch. Ron obviously felt the same. Time out! Ah, come on, he can't play like that. Look at him. Look at Lynch, Harry yelled. For the Irish seeker had suddenly gone into a dive and Harry was quite sure that this was no Wonski feint, this was real thing. He's seen the snitch, Harry shouted. He's seen it, look at him, go. Half the crowd seemed to have realised what was happening. The Irish supporters rose in a great wave of green, screaming the seeker on. But Crumb was on his tail. How he could see where he was going, Harry had no idea. There were flecks of blood flying through the air behind him, but he was growing level with Lynch now. As the pair of them hurtled towards the ground again. They are going to crash, shrieked Hermione. They are not road wrong. Lynches, yelled Harry. And he was right. For the second time, Lynch hit the ground with tremendous force and was immediately stamped it by a horde of angry Vila. The snitch, worst snitch, bellowed Charlie along the road. He's got it. Crumb's got it. It's all over shouted Harry. Crumb, his red robes shining with blood from his noise, was rising gently into the air, his fist held high, a glint of gold in his hand. The scoreboard was flashing. Bulgaria 160, Ireland 170, across the crowd who didn't seem to have realized what had happened. Then, slowly, as though a great jumble jet was reeving up, the rumbling from the island's supporters grew louder and louder and erupted into screams of delight. Ireland wins, shouted Baxman, who, like the Irish, seemed to have been taken aback by the sudden end of the match. Crown gets the snitch, but Ireland win. Good Lord, I don't think any of us were, were expecting that. What did, he, what did he catch the niche for? 
one below, even as he jumped up and down, applauding with his hands over his head. He ended it when Ireland were a hundred and sixty points ahead. The idiot! He knew they were never going to catch up, Harry shouted back over all the noise, also applauding loudly. The Irish chasers were too good. He wanted to end it on his terms, that's all. He was very brave, wasn't he? Hermione said, leaning forward to watch Crumb land, and the swarm of many wizards blasting a pass through the battling lip lip leprechauns and Vila to get to him. He looks a terrible mess. Harry put his omnioculars to his eyes again. It was hard to see what was happening below because leprechauns were zooming delightedly all over the pitch, but he could just make out Crumb, surrounded by many wizards. He looked surlier than ever and refused to let them mop him up. His teammates were around him, shaking their heads and looking dejected. A short way away, the Irish players were dancing gleefully in a shower of gold descending from their mascots. Flags were waving all over the stadium. The Irish national on them bled from all sides. The villa was shrinking back into their usual beautiful selves now, though looking disparated and forlorn. Well, we felt bravely, said the gloomy voice behind Harry. He looked around. It was the Bulgarian Minister of Magic, for magic. You can speak English, said Fudge, sounding outraged. And you've been letting me mime everything all day. Well, it was very funny, said the Bulgarian Minister, shrugging. And as the Irish team performed a lap of honour, flanked by the mascots, the Quidditch World Cup itself is brought into the top box, rolled backman. Harry's eyes were suddenly dazzled by a blinding white light, as the top box was magically illuminated so that everyone in the stands could see the inside. Squinting towards the entrance, he saw two panting wizards carrying into the box a vast golden cup, which they handed to Cornelius Fudge, who was still looking very disgruntled that he'd been using sign language all day for nothing. Let's have a really loud hand for the gallant losers, Bulgaria, Bagman shouted. And up the stairs into the box came the seven defeated Bulgarian players. The crowd below were applauding appreciatively. Harry could see thousands of thousands of omnioculars lenses flashing and winking in their direction. One by one, the Bulgarians filled between the rows of seats in the box, and Bachmann called out the name of each as they shook hands with their own minister and then with Fudge. Cram, who was last in line, looked a real mess. Two black eyes were blooming spectacularly on his bloody face. He was still holding the snitch. Harry noticed that he seemed much less coordinated on the ground. He was lightly duck-footed and distinctly round-shouldered. But when Crumb's name 
was announced, the whole stadium gave him a resounding, ear-splitting roar. And then came the Irish team. Aidan Lynch was being supported by Moran and Connolly. The second crash seemed to have dazed him, and his eyes looked strangely unfocused. But he grinned happily as Troy and quickly lift up, lift, lifted the cup into the air, and the crowd below thundered their approval. Harry's hand were numb with clapping. At last, when the, the Irish team had left the box to perform another lap of honour on their brooms, Aidan Lynch on the back of Connolly's, clutching hard around his waist and still grinning in a bemused sort of way, Bagman pointed his wand at his throat and muted, quietus. They'll be talking about this one for years, he said hoarsely, a really in unexpected twist. That shame it couldn't have lasted longer. Ah, oh, yes, yes, I owe you. How much? For Fred and George had scrambled over the backs of the seats and were standing in front of Ludo Baxman with broad grins on their faces, their hands outstretched. The end. And yes, um, Fred and George had um, bet that the game finished uh, this way. So they won a lot of money. So I hope that you slept well with my bad English reading. And good night. And I love you.